0: Today's episode is brought to you by Alife Health. Managing IVF just got easier. Download the Alife app today for easy-to-use test result tracking, medication and appointment reminders, and a timeline to prepare you for the next steps. Your IVF journey, all in one place. Now available on the Apple App Store. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with Texas Fertility Center in another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined by an, my amazing, delightful best friend co host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. How are you all doing today? Great. It's summer. It's nice. It may be nice where you are. It has been pretty hot. It's been hot in Texas.
1: <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. Texas is like, it's like living in hell almost in it, Texas now, isn't it? Even hotter it's than Las Vegas in hell maybe? right
0: now. <laughs> it, it's, oh my goodness. Our heat index has been like most days that the just heat is 101 to 102, which I know even for Vegas is not that bad, but our mm. heat index is 115 to 120.
1: I know. I've seen that. It's just rude. It that's is. awful.
0: It's it's miserable. It's miserable. It's like you try to go outside and you're like, "Ooh, please let it be. Uh, please let it yeah, be." Yeah. But then awful. you have all this like crazy weather when you have this happen. My family went camping this last week, and in On the purpose? middle, in the middle, well, it's scout camping. Uh, Ooh summer scout camping. In the middle of all this heat, they get to the campsite. They had baseball, full-size baseball-size hail. No
1: kidding. Wow. That's awesome.
0: One kid ended up with a concussion. Oh a scout, a, an assistant scout leader broke his thumb. My husband's, you know, those um, plastic trunks you get at like Academy or whatever for camping? Yeah,
1: for scout camp.
0: <laughs> it. Punched a hole in the top of that thing, those things are like relatively indestructible.
1: They are very Whoa. strong.
0: It was crazy in the middle of this.
1: That's nuts. Wow. So, summer traditions is what we were going to talk about. And hey, that's scout camp, but not with hell is not a summer tradition. <laughs> summer tradition
0: for me is scout camp. Everybody leaves and I have a little alone time.
2: <laughs> that sounds amazing, except for this year. It wasn't so great.
0: Yeah. It, was, it would be nice if it was like mm, 10 degrees cooler. Yeah. Yeah.
2: My family usually goes to San Diego for a week. Um, Ooh, nice. And- hang out near the beach and meet up with you know other other parts of the family and it's I look forward to it at the end of every summer it's usually like late July early August somewhere in that time frame and um, right before school starts because our school starts early it's like August 8th or something obscene and so um, so yeah I love that trip because it's I've just I've been
0: to San Diego but I haven't ever been to the beach there what are the beaches like in San Diego?
2: Yeah I don't think I've ever been to the beach in San Diego either
0: brown, white, cold, warm uh, they're colored kind of, the
2: water is cold. The Pacific Ocean is cold.
0: Okay. So Actually, i have been almost debating. guaranteed
2: it's going to be cold. Like, if you're going to go to the Pacific, go go in mid to late July or August, like early August, um, because that's when it's hottest outside and it warms up the most. Um, They have a lot of really nice white sandy beaches. Uh, Coronado Island is beautiful. Mm. You know, Imperial Beach is pretty nice. Um, There's uh, Mission Beach. Like, there's a lot of really nice white sandy beaches there. Mm -hmm. Um, But but yeah, the water is cold. You have to be mentally prepared for that.
1: Yeah, I thought I'd never been to the beach in San Diego, but I I was reminded of about probably about eight or ten years ago we went there on a family vacation in June. And, you know, we're used to going to the beach in Florida or South Carolina. And, oh, my gosh, we got in the water. I'm like,
0: oh, this is freezing. Yeah, It was on
1: Coronado
2: Beach is where it was. It was so cold. Yeah. Oh, it's freezing. It's I I rarely get in the water anymore unless it's super hot.
0: This is coming from somebody who's smack dab in the middle. And, you know, the only thing we got is the Gulf of Mexico, which is warm. But I thought the Pacific Ocean was supposed to be like warm and the Atlantic Ocean was supposed to be cold.
1: No, it's not. Uh-uh. No, Pacific no.
0: is
2: cold. Pacific cold. is cold. 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 Like, and the I Atlantic
0: the Paci- is warm.
2: Relatively, yeah. Yeah, yeah compared. Really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like really. I remember going to, I don't know, North Carolina, South Carolina, something like that, wherever the outer banks are. It's yeah, it's warm down there. And it was great. Like you could just dive in and start. I, I swimming am geographically
0: in. challenged for any of our listeners. <laughs> 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 turn I am not the person you can turn around and say which way is north. I'd be like, um, that way <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah no it's it's cold like people all the surfers always have wetsuits and yeah and they need them yeah what about
0: you abby what's your what's your tradition
2: um, not a whole lot we just we have a a, a nice
1: outdoor area and i'm usually not a big entertainer, but we moved into this house about six years ago. I'm like, you know, my mom and dad had lots of parties when I was growing up, which was more the thing back then. But it's like, you know, I feel like I want to gather with people. So usually we try and choose a holiday or two, either Labor Day or Memorial Day or Fourth of July and have people over and have a pool party. And um, so that's kind of, I guess, become our tradition in the last several years.
0: Fun. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's do a question uh, or two. Okay. So our first (laughs) one is, Question. ir 21. We have been trying to conceive for two years and I have PCOS. We did seven letrozole cycles with an gen, confirmed ovulation with cycle day 21 progesterone draws, referred to an REI and did testing. HSG was clear, AFC of 60 on both ovaries, AMH 10.2, TSH 3.77, now 1.7. Husband's even analysis was perfect. Started monitoring time to intercourse cycles on 5 milligrams of letrozole in 100 IUs of gonal F in March was canceled for 29 follicles.
1: Woo! said I co- thought A- she had an AFC count of 60, so I guess I did hear that right.
0: You did hear that correctly. We wow. somehow conceived from timed intercourse five days before ovulation, but miscarried at six weeks and two days. April, we did five milligrams of letrozole 75. I used the gonal app and had five small follicles on cycle day 12. So we did 50 of gonal on cycle day 12 and 13. We got two follicles, 16 and 17, negative home pregnancy tests. Why do I stimulate so differently? REI says one to four more tries we need to move before IVF. But I just conceived.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could argue if you just conceived. And she conceived on just letrozole, right?
2: No. letrozole. No, it looks like letrozole and gonel.
0: That was the letrozole, gonel, and 29 follicle.
2: (laughs) I can't imagine the chest pain I would have if I saw an IUI patient with 29 mature follicles. Yeah.
0: I'd be like, you know how we're talking about not doing IVF? Maybe it's a really good idea right now. They were mature, 29 mature follicles? She didn't didn't give measurements, but I mean, it was 20. I mean, if she has baseline, has either 60, 60, 60, 60 yeah, well, then that's 29 that were big. I mean, that, that sounds like deep.
1: a really great IVF cycle to me.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. Um, You know, when I see follicles like this, it, it's such a fine line. It's such a fine line between not doing anything and exploding. And yeah. um, I can say that if you have the means to do IVF in this type of situation, yeah, you can think of it this way. If you get pregnant with multiples, the long-term costs of what your multiples are going to cost because it is significantly more expensive to have two children at one time than it is to have sequential children will will dwarf the amount that you would have paid for an IVF cycle to be safe and have one child at a time. So, if you can do that... That's what I would recommend.
1: Well, and not to be negative, but I mean, you can get pregnant with triplets or quadruplets or quintuplets and those don't do well. I mean, even with twins, I've had a couple of patients over the years that have delivered twins prematurely and they died. And so it's just a high-risk pregnancy. None of us want you to have a high-risk pregnancy. And as far as the why you got pregnant, um, I don't know how many follicles that you had, but it's just law of average. If you have a lot more follicles to fertilize, you're probably more likely to get pregnant. But ASRM doesn't really tell us though. I mean, based on what ASRM says in 2020, the data that's available doesn't necessarily say that you have a better chance. You just have a better chance of multiples if you get pregnant.
0: And I mean, you've already done seven letrozole cycles previously. You were not successful. You have essentially ovulated mm, let's say 10 to 20 eggs and you got pregnant with a singleton that you miscarried, like, I think there's more going on than just PCOS. And and some of what we do is, in IVF is not only therapeutic, but it's also diagnostic. There's things that we're going to learn as we get sperm and egg in a dish.
1: And we control more of the steps and it's just safer because we only transfer one embryo at a time too.
2: One of the things that may be particularly advantageous, I had a woman who she went through and she made, I don't know, 9, 10, 11, something like that. At embryos, and we initially didn't do any genetic testing because she was young. We didn't think we needed it, and started doing transfer after transfer after transfer, and just not getting anywhere. Well, after about the second, I think it was a third one, we decided we're going to take the risk, thaw the embryos, and do uh, genetic testing on all of them. And it was like five out of the six remaining ones were abnormal. Mm-hmm. It was it was a distressingly large percentage that nobody would have ever guessed because none of her testing led up to that. And, and we just, we had no idea. But that that may be something that's actually more beneficial because I I agree with these two. You have done so many letrozole cycles with proof of ovulation. If his sperm count is really bright and shiny and pristine, just call it and move on. Like life's too short. Yeah. Have a baby.
0: All right. One more. So this is at the other end of the age spectrum. Um, age is 42, partner is 41. My tests at Fertility Clinic were fine, HSG, hysterosonogram, etc. No major concerns other than slight heart shape to uterus, but not completely septate. AMH is 1.4. Partner's sperm is solid in all categories. We planned to do IVF in November, got, but got pregnant naturally, miscarried after six weeks. Got pregnant again in February naturally, but location was unknown and terminated with one methotrexate injection. Now that my cycle has regulated, IVF should finally start um, this summer with estrogen priming for 11 days, then stem cycle starts. We Plan to have embryos genetically tested. What's my chance of miscarriage if only good ones are transferred? Good in quotes, especially given my age, uterus shape, and recent losses.
2: I don't think uterine shape is probably paying a whole lot of, uh, Mm -hmm. having a whole lot of impact in this one. Um, I think this is probably a lot more driven by age. Uh, because even with people who have the best testing results, their AMH is good. Their follicle numbers are great. Their FSH is reasonable, all of those things. And the cycle you're planning on doing with the priming sounds very reasonable, but, um, Even when you test those embryos and you know that they are good, meaning they have 46 chromosomes, you don't know that the function is good. So the way that I always think about this is if you're looking down on a neighborhood from from the top, you can see that there's a house in every lot on the cul-de-sac. You can see that it's got doors, windows, looks reasonable. But you have no idea if the plumbing works the electricity, all of the things that need to happen within a house to really make it function, you have no idea if any of those work. And that's what PGTA is like. You can see that the chromosomes are there, but you don't know about the function. And all of the little structures within the egg that Power this thing and power it to grow into an embryo. Those are also now 43 years old because they they were there before you were born. And there's no mechanic putting WD-40 on all those hinges, and so there's nobody doing maintenance on that. And that means stuff breaks down and just doesn't work as well. So that is something that even with IVF you can't battle that. And so miscarriage risk in this population, um, when I think back, just the prelim studies that I have seen, I want to say it's like 40% of a. Negative negative test. Not necessarily a miscarriage, but just a negative pregnancy test. No baby at the end of it.
0: So, but if you, even if you're 42... With a chromosome, what I think she's asking, with a chromosomally normal embryo, what should her odds of pregnancy be depending on her lab? Because it is going to vary from lab to lab. I mean, it's yeah. like 60
2: to 70 percent. Cause usually the, the PGT makes up for a lot of the deficit why those labs drop. Um, I don't remember in this population. I don't remember when the drop down to like 40, 50 percent occurs. I don't remember if it's 42 or 43. Um but in,
1: I'll say in our practice for the first time this year across the board in every age group, there's no statistical difference. Our pregnancy rates go somewhere between 60 to 65% if you're under 35, if you're being between 35 and 40, and if you're between 40 and 42, if you have a normal embryo. But that for a lot of people, that's really the big challenge is getting a normal embryo.
0: Right. Agreed. Yeah. Very good. Awesome. Good nice. stuff. Well, today we are gonna talk all about HCG. And HCG is pregnancy hormone. Carrie, can we can you give us a little sciencey stuff about pregnancy hormone?
2: I think you're asking me to be a nerd here as well. I, I am, I am. So HCG is uh, human chorionic gonadotropin. And so what that means is that it is a molecule that is only produced at, typically only produced at certain points in life when someone is actually pregnant. Um, it's produced um, first in very, very low levels. You can actually pick it up as early as not just with the missed period, if you're doing a, a either a quantitative or qualitative test, meaning are you doing a blood draw where you're getting the numbers or are you peeing on a stick where you're seeing the little extra line? Um, you can see that several days prior to your missed period. So for example, when we're doing um, when we're doing a frozen embryo transfer and we're checking levels five days later, you can start to see the HCG very, very early because it's being produced by the embryo. Now it's got a very um very unique status and that it's only produced at that time, but it's not unique in that the structure of it is very similar to a lot of the other hormones that your body is depending on your TSH, so your thyroid hormone, AC CTH, which one's your adrenals, um, uh, several of these hormones are all built very similarly. So you've got an alpha subunit and a beta subunit, these two parts that click in together. So the alpha subunit is similar between all these different hormones um, and the beta is different. So that's why you hear us refer to a beta HCG because that's the unique part of it. The alpha HCG is similar to everything else. Um, and so it's one of the easiest things we can do to track a pregnancy because that's the only time that it's typically present in the body. You can have some other times when it comes up, you know, with tumors and and things like that, but that's relatively rare. So that's what makes it such a reliable uh, hormone or molecule to follow uh, follow when we're following
1: pregnancies. but one one important point to add in is when, you get a trigger shot so like if you're trying to get pregnant with say oral ovulation induction and you get a trigger shot don't t- test your pregnancy test too early because that trigger shot will show up positive on your predictor kit even or on your uh, pregnancy test even though it's not the same hormone so luteinizing hormone binds to the same receptor and can show a positive false positive when you're not
2: really pregnant
0: and some some trigger shots are actually hCG so that's going to make you have a positive pregnancy test yeah. as well
2: That's Mm -hmm. one of the places where we are capitalizing on how those alpha subunits are the same. Because with LH, usually the half life is somewhere between 20 minutes and two hours. HCG has a half life of about 24 hours, meaning you put it in, and for LH, it's gone very quickly. For HCG, it'll last a full day. And so we use that to our advantage with those HCG trigger shots because we can give it and get a much stronger response from it. And that's why we like those.
0: Absolutely. All right. So we're going to talk about normal. First. Okay. It's always good to establish what is baseline normal. So, Abby, when somebody goes through some sort of thing to get pregnant, whether they're trying to conceive on their own or it's with our help or something like that, and they do a pregnancy test. Let's mm-hmm. let's talk about the difference in pregnancy tests real quick first. Carrie mentioned it a little bit, but let's go yep. on that in a little more detail.
1: So there's qualitative and there's quantitative. And qualitative is really just yes or no. I'm pregnant or I'm not. My stick is positive. My stick has, stick has one line or has two lines. So that just sort of tells you yes or no. But really what we're interested in is usually as physicians is how high is that number and how well is it rising? And so in order to figure that out, we actually do a blood test and we actually get a number Um, And the higher, usually the higher, the number, the happier we are for the most part.
0: Is there a normal for that first pregnancy test? It is all time dependent.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the lab a little bit too, but I'm happy if it's over 100, but you know, you can, it can be a little lower, it can be a little higher and still be fine.
0: I mean, everybody's pregnancy test is low at some point. Yeah. Okay? And that's really an important thing to understand is, is just that, like you said, it depends on time. If you are just very, very newly pregnant, it's normal to have a low number and that number should start growing. What type of growth or escalation in those values, do we want to see at a minimum and what do we like to see that gives us a warm fuzzy? So we like
2: to see doubling because number one, that's really easy to calculate. Um, <laughs> and as we're looking, we're like, okay, we're 48 hours later, this should be twice of what it was before or more. Nobody's going to object if it's more. Um, yeah, we like for it to be more. More is even better. <laughs> yeah, more. This is one of the circumstances where more is better. You know, HCG and chocolate, more is always better. Um, <laughs> when you're Looking at just what you need, it's really more along the lines of it's like 67 ish percent that you need it to increase over that 48 hour period. And so, if you can see it go up by that, a lot of patients freak out because everything that's on the internet is doubling, doubling. Mm-hmm. Because, because it's easy. You know, everybody can say, oh, it should be twice that. And as opposed to figuring out, well, it really should be a 67 percent increase. Mm-hmm. So that's harder, but that's really what we're looking for. And and like, uh, like we were saying, it's a moving picture that you're going for. When you get just one HCG, that is a snapshot. When you have a handful, at the very least, it's a flip book. So you can start to see how it's changing. You can start to see how it's evolving because that one picture doesn't tell you anything more than just It is positive and this is what the level is. Sometimes when it's really high, we can say, okay, this is a high enough point where I should be able to see something on ultrasound, for example. And that's why when patients have an abnormally rising HCG, for example, and they say, well, can't you just do an ultrasound and check? Believe me, we would dearly love to, to Mm -hmm. know exactly what's going on. But there is a point where if the HCG is low, you don't expect to see anything on ultrasound, no matter what's going on, because it's just too small. And it indicates that the pregnancy is too small to reliably be seen. So you can't bank on that to say everything is okay or not okay.
0: So at what point with an HCG level should most people be able to see something in the uterus or maybe outside of the uterus um, with a vaginal ultrasound, which is the way most people are going to be scanned when they first get pregnant? I'd say
1: probably 1,500 to 2,000, you should see, at least see a sack there. But I think the other thing that we as OBGYNs and fertility doctors worry a little bit about is for somebody that's been on fertility treatment, sometimes we worry that maybe could this be you know a, a twin pregnancy and it should have a higher number. And so therefore, you know we have to wait till a higher number to really be able to see the, that pregnancy come along. So there's never, I think every situation is individual for every patient, um, but right Roughly 1,500 to 2,000, for most people, you would see something in the uterus. It won't be a baby. It won't be a baby with a heartbeat. But if we see a sac in there, um, we tend to start to feel like we're okay in terms of it's actually in the uterus. And
2: timing wise, if you are at five weeks and five days, we should be seeing a sac in the uterus. Mm-hmm. By the time you hit six, two, six weeks, two days or so, you should be able to start to see a developing fetal pole, And really should probably see at least a flicker of a heartbeat at that point. But here's the caveat on that is that as IVF doctors, if you'd have a frozen embryo transfer, fresh transfer, whatever, we know exactly when you got pregnant. If you had an IUI and got a trigger, We've got a pretty decent idea as to when you got pregnant. If you got pregnant on your own,
0: we have no idea. We love you,
2: but we don't <laughs> trust you. Um, and and it's really your period that we don't trust because we never know exactly when you got pregnant. And the last thing that any of us want to do is to tr- try and treat, particularly with methotrexate, a pregnancy that is just too early because the dating's wrong. So that's part of the reason why we follow these hCG levels because if you get to the point where you're two to two and a half weeks after your initial hCG and you are seeing nothing in the uterus, that's a problem. It should have shown up by then.
0: So a couple of things I want to comment on is when we're talking about a sac in the uterus, so we're actually talking about two little sacs. So um, at five and a half weeks, we should see the gestational sac, so where the baby lives in the uterus. But we also should see a little white sac with inside of it a little circle, and that's the yolk sac, and that's what's feeding the baby as the placenta develops. So that's an important thing there. The other thing is, is When we're talking about these rising HCG levels is that although we talk about that it needs to go up at least by 60% or that it should double, we all know that at some point these numbers just skyrocket, okay? And we have all had people who their HCG levels technically played by the rules, but by the time that we knew that I mean you have a you have an HCG level at like point A and at point B, it's been, you know, two weeks later, we know you should be at least five and a half to six weeks, and we're not seeing anything. And so you may have technically a normal rise, but things still may not be normal, okay? So if if we're looking at things that we're worried about abnormal, what are some of the abnormalities that we're seeing?
1: I always tell patients the number one thing that we as doctors have to worry about is worst case scenario. Doesn't mean we think the worst case scenario is going to happen, but we have to watch out for your health. And because I think a lot of patients get really frustrated that we they can't, they don't really know what's going on because we don't really know what's going mm-hmm. on and we keep bringing them back to the office. I've had more than one patient get really upset that, well, why do you keep bringing me back? And you know, we we basically, I tell patients that we don't want to let go of you until we figure out what's going on. And if that means a few days from now or a couple of weeks from now, we have to keep following you every few days. And what we worry most about is could it be a pregnancy in the wrong place? And so once we are able to see that sac in your uterus, we don't know yet for sure that that's a normal pregnancy, but it just, we can let our guard down. We don't have to worry that, oh my gosh, is this going to be a surgical emergency? Is something is this in the tube and it's going to grow in the tube and break the tube open and we're going to have to do an emergency surgery? So really, that's the really main thing. Number one thing we worry about is, is this a tubal pregnancy? And we don't want to let our patients go and quit following them until we know exactly where the pregnancy is located.
0: So if we don't think we have an ectopic pregnancy or a pregnancy in the wrong place, and most ectopic pregnancies are going to be in the tube, but they can be in other places, mm-hmm. Um, they can be in C-section scars, they can be on an ovary, they can be <laughs> on the bowel, they can... They can
2: be on the cervix.
0: They can be in the yeah. cervix, yeah. They, there can be all kinds of crazy things that happen. Um, but what are, what are some of the other things that could be happening in between normal pregnancy and ectopic pregnancy? What are, what, what are some more of those in-betweens that aren't normal, but what are they?
2: So sometimes you'll see a twin pregnancy with weird numbers. And so you'll be seeing higher levels because there's two babies in there, but you won't be seeing anything on ultrasound yet. And that's where knowing when your positive test was is really helpful, when your last period was, you know, all of those details comes into play because it's putting all the pieces together to to see that. Sometimes um, we'll have what's called a vanishing twin. And what that is, is, two embryos started to grow. And one of them, at some point, everything was turned off. It was determined by the body. It is not a viable pregnancy. And it stopped growing. This
0: totally wreaks havoc on your numbers. It totally... It
2: destroys them because you can have them going up at a really good clip. And then all of a sudden they plateau. And you're like, what the hell happened? This was great. And when you get to the point where you can do ultrasound and see things, you'll see, oh, there's two sacs in there, but only one has anything in it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't even see the second sac and you just kind of go. All right, you know, cross our fingers and see how it goes. But um, multiple pregnancies can really wreak havoc because they can disappear. They have much higher levels. They can be much lower levels. They don't necessarily follow the pattern when something else is going on there.
0: What about sometimes we'll have patients who pregnancy hormone levels are going up, but then they have bleeding. Okay, and we have seen something in the uterus already, and. Patients are like, I want my HCG drawn. How helpful is that?
1: Sometimes it's not so helpful because the HCG is actually secreted by the fetal placenta. So once we see a sac in the uterus, the good news is we know that the pregnancy is in the uterus. But like I said before, we don't know for sure that it's a healthy pregnancy. And sometimes what we see is that the, the HCG continues to go up, but then we bring the patient back, say a week later and look, and there's still just a gestational sac in there. And so if we just see a sac and really no other development, the term we use for that is called blotted ovum. It really means that The pregnancy is implanted, but it's just kind of stopped. But the sac and the placental tissue can continue to grow. HCG levels can continue to go up. And it's really kind of just really upsetting for patients because they start having even more pregnancy symptoms like breast tenderness and those sorts of things, even though it's not a healthy pregnancy.
2: Really the value of HCG, once you have seen something in the uterus and you've confirmed that it's an intrauterine pregnancy, the biggest value of an HCG is when it starts to go down. Yeah, Because if it goes down at that point, and this is usually still very early on in the pregnancy, if it goes down, then com- uh, combined with lack of heartbeat, combined with bleeding, combined with some of these other symptoms. Then you know, okay, this pregnancy is is no longer growing and it's coming down. Yeah.
0: Um, but an important thing also to know is there is a point in pregnancy though that hCG starts to plateau, so it doesn't yep. keep on escalating. Um, you know, but by
1: that time you should see a baby with a heartbeat and it should be wiggling around, <laughs> that's right, that's later right. in but the that's second why, trimester. That's why
0: coming in for those ultrasounds is more valuable than getting that right. hCG level at that point. Um, yeah, drawn. Um, uh, let's talk just to kind of make sure we cover everything a little bit about pregnancy of unknown location so this is a term that like i don't think we really used it like five ten years ago it's mm-hmm. kind of a newer term but it definitely is used more often i believe now mm-hmm. um what what is pregnancy of unknown location and what does this mean in like hcg terms
1: it's really kind of no man's land. It's kinda of like a, when the space shuttle takes off, there's a certain window there where, you know, mission control can't communicate. And that's kind of <laughs> what it's like. You know, we know that the space shuttle's taking off. We know that the pregnancy hormone level's good, but there's a window in there, as Carrie mentioned before, where it's going up, but we can't see anything on ultrasound yet. And all we know that it's going up, we just don't know where it is. And sometimes when people stall out at that point, that's when it's the most frustrating for everybody because we can't truly say it's a healthy pregnancy. We can't say it's abnormal pregnancy, but we can't stop, you know, having patients come back and checking those levels until we really can confirm that it either plateaus and starts dropping or, you know, it's going up correctly. And so it's kind of a window of time where the pregnancy is really just not far enough along to know where it is. We know you're pregnant, but we just don't know where it is. And it could be in multiple places. Like we just said, the cervix, um, it could be in the tube. It could be somewhere
2: else in the body cavity. Really, the key to all of this is just relatively frequent monitoring, you know, HCG levels every other day, usually, um, or in a, a tight window, not necessarily every other day.
0: And getting them drawn at the same lab. Lab.
2: Yeah. So don't, <laughs> yes.
0: don't go from Quest to CPL to LabCorp to the hospital lab. That That's going to wreak havoc on things. It's not that precise
1: And the other thing along those same lines is don't go back and forth between your OBGYN and your fertility doctor. Stick with one doctor because it gets really confusing if two different people are monitoring you and somebody's doing an ultrasound here and somebody's hormone levels. It's just, it's hard to keep track of you. This is when you really need to stick with one doctor and be in really close contact with that practice and that physician.
2: And doing ultrasounds all the time, even when you have seen something, doesn't necessarily uh, give you a whole lot of extra information when you're doing them, you know, every day, every other day to the frequency that you might be doing lab results. Because you have to have a window of time in between your ultrasound readings in order to show mm-hmm. this is legitimately changing versus this is just the normal error between one one day and the next. Because these machines are precise, but they're not that precise. So um, when you see for one of the easiest examples is lining checks or growth of a baby, if you do them too close together and get wildly different results, then it's probably just the normal error. And it's better to wait because that way you know a week later that you've got a legit result, particularly with baby growth.
1: And one really important point, actually a couple of really important points ultrasonographers matter. So people who are usually doing scans of the thyroid and the brain during the day, if they're called into the emergency room at night, they don't usually do pelvic ultrasounds. They're not going to be nearly as good as somebody who does pelvic ultrasounds all the time. So I would venture to say in all of our offices, we have ultrasonographers that they do 60, 70, 80, 100 scans a week on the pelvis, Mm -hmm. and they're really good at it. And, you know, but even somebody who's really good, if if there's just not enough development to see, they can't see it. But I think it's really important to know that the ultrasonographers Matters. And also, the ultrasound is just one piece of the puzzle. It's, it's not a yes or no. If we do an ultrasound and we don't see anything, we may not see it today. But if you come back in two days, we may see it at that point. So, it's not really a yes or no. It's just one piece of the whole puzzle that we have to put together to figure out what's going on.
0: Absolutely. definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we have covered a lot about HCG. Um, so, to our audience, thank you so much for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So follow, subscribe, and stay updated to all things infertility.
2: You can also visit FertilityDocsUncensored.com to submit your specific questions you have about infertility. They'll be answered on the Ask the Docs segment. And start reserving your rooms for the Fertility Uncensored conference that we are doing October twenty eighth, 2023 in New Braunfels, Texas. And go to our website, FertilityDocsUncensored.com and get more information because we would love to see you there. It'll be fun. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not
1: a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. And we look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Hopefully in New Braunfels. <laughs> love y'all. Bye. 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 Today's episode was brought to you by Alife Health. Whether you're currently going through IVF or looking to create a digital record, the Life app can help you stay organized, informed, and empowered throughout the entire IVF journey. Download the Alife app today, now available on the Apple App Store.